Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You said this is one of your favorite buildings. It is. Why? It's one of the first modernist banks in the United States. No, no, that can't be it. Do you like this building intellectually because of all the facts? No. I'm also moved by it. Yes. John Cho yes, and Haley Lou Richardson in a clip from last year's Film Spotting Golden Brick Award winner, Columbus, the debut film from writer-director Koganada. A film we liked intellectually and were moved by. The Golden Brick goes to our favorite underseen movie of the year, a movie like Columbus that comes from a new filmmaker or at least a new-to-us filmmaker who reveals a unique vision. We won't be handing out any awards till the end of the year, but this week on the show, reviews of several Brick-eligible films that we want to make sure are on your movie radar. All that and more. And by that, we mean I'll also have thoughts on the Happy Time murders. Ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. That clip from Columbus we played at the top of the show, Josh, John Cho, Haley Lou Richardson talking about art and why they appreciate it, how to talk about it emotionally as well as intellectually. Pretty much the subject of last week's top five we did here on the show, things we've learned from podcasting about the movies. With the great Dave Chen from the Slash Filmcast. Really nice to have Dave on the show to get that outside perspective of mm-hmm. someone who is doing this, but through a different show with different listeners and see what he's learned in the last uh, almost 10 years, right? With yeah, Slash it's been over cast. 10 years. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun to do. It really was. And so far, the feedback has been wonderful. We hope to feature some of that on an upcoming show. There is no top five this week. I think maybe we needed to recover from all the effort that went into that one. We will turn the show over to thoughts on a few new films that we think deserve more attention than they're getting as we head into the fall. We will start assembling our Golden Brick Award shortlist here in earnest. The criteria, Josh, for the Golden Brick, for those who are maybe uninitiated. Yeah, longtime listeners know this, but what we look for in a Golden Brick film is for it to be a new or newly established filmmaker, somebody we're not very familiar with for sure. Also, a movie that didn't get a lot of mainstream publicity and then one that shows artistic ambition, a particular vision that sets it apart. Artistic ambition, subjective, that can be something that's hard to determine, but even harder sometimes actually is that criterion of little to no mainstream publicity. We talk about this a lot on the show, sometimes movies that we think are 
relatively small in stature. Well, maybe they appeared on 800 screens and everyone's heard about it or it's gotten so much acclaim that it doesn't really feel like it was underseen maybe to some of our listeners. So we try to navigate those waters as best we can. Currently on the 2018 shortlist, we do have Chloe Zhao's The Writer. This is a film that is available right now to rent or stream in various places. Thoroughbreds, directed by Corey Finley. This is also available to rent. And that's one of the two, Josh, that I have not seen. You have and did recommend it for The Brick. The Writer, definitely recommended by me. We've both seen it. In fact, it was among my top five. I think actually my top three films of the year. You had it just outside your top five. Was it in the top 10? It was not in my top five, but at that point it was in my top 10. So yeah, still in contention there. Two other films that are on this 2018 Golden Brick shortlist are Three Identical Strangers, a documentary that you've seen. I have not Mm -hmm. yet, but we'll get an easy chance to soon. It comes out on DVD October 2nd. And then Chosen, Custody of the Eyes. I describe it as a transcendental documentary that was filmed like another doc that we're going to be discussing on this show in Rockford, Illinois, believe it or not. That one is only available for DVD purchase. So we're going really small there, Mm -hmm. but I do think it is worth Golden Brick consideration. Yeah. And I'm extremely excited to see that film. In fact, I'd completely forgotten about it myself somehow since you brought it up on a fairly recent episode. We do hope to catch up with all those films and many more potential Golden Brick nominees. We've been getting a lot of great feedback from listeners on those movies that you want to make sure we don't overlook. Continue to send that to us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can keep track of the titles as they come in, as we nominate them, and check out previous year's winners and nominees at filmspotting.net slash bricks. Among the titles we will get to today, Josephine Decker's Madeline's Madeline. I can't wait for Josh to explain to me what exactly is going on there. Oh, boy. And... The doc, John McEnroe, in the realm of perfection, another movie, believe it or not, despite being about a sports figure, that I can't wait for Josh to explain to me what exactly is going on there. Before we get to those, we're going to start with another documentary, Minding the Gap, in which director Bing Liu turns his camera on a pair of childhood friends who shared his passion for skateboarding and are now struggling as adults to leave those boards behind. Take one. I'm making this film because I saw myself in your story. I always felt like I didn't fit in with my family. My parents ran this very controlling house. I ran away a lot. Skateboarding is more of a family than my family. How did you get disciplined? I mean, well, they call it child abuse now, but... Life might be moving too fast. We have to fully grow up and it's gonna suck. When you're a kid, you just do, you just act. And then somewhere along the line, everyone loses that. I flirted with skateboarding as a child of the 1980s, Adam. I can see that. I can still picture the hot pink and black board that I got for my birthday. And even back then, my friends and I had the desire to film our, well, I wouldn't really call them tricks because we were never very good. It wasn't so easy back in the day, though. Our family video camera was about the size of a suitcase. But nowadays, with GoPros and camera phones, hobby footage of skateboarding is ubiquitous and endlessly viewable on YouTube. Not likely material, then, for a visionary documentary. But that's how I would describe Minding the Gap, a debut effort from director Bing Liu and produced by Chicago's Kartemquin Films. So yes, very much a golden brick candidate. In the first-person doc, Bing interviews two childhood friends, Kier Johnson and Zach Mulligan, who live their teen lives on skateboards but are having difficulty carrying that sense of freedom into adulthood. 
There is archive footage from their early days together, but the stunning stuff is from more recent years, where Bing employs a glide cam so he can float behind them at head level as they swoop, swerve, spin, and crash. He somehow imbues such familiar imagery with a transcendent glory. It's not just the camera work, however, but also the context Bing brings to it. Adam, I want to get your take on how you felt Bing elevated what could have been common material, but I'm also curious about your personal context. Was skateboarding all the rage in small-town Iowa when you were a kid, or was it something you watched from afar? Yeah, I definitely watched it from afar. All that's popping into my head right now as you say that is the summer when maybe I was in eighth grade, I think just about to go into high school, and I remember that two of our friends who were girls within our kind of group of friends, when they went to visit one of their other friends in another town in Iowa, and then they met these two boys and they were skater dudes. Skaters. And then Ooh. the skater dudes showed up in oh, our man. town. And Please tell me there was an Iowan rumble. <laughs> there was almost a rumble, but it didn't quite <laughs> come to that, fortunately. So our heads are really in the same place with this film because I have been recommending it to several people since I saw the film about a week ago. And one of the things I've been trying to convey is that it truly is a transcendent movie watching experience, not just a well-made documentary. And so I've had to express all those reasons why it rises above that. And I have at least five. I look forward to hearing some of your reasons, Josh. We'll see if we get to all of mine. But I think we have to start with where you started, and it's that skateboarding footage itself. Like the film overall, it isn't just competently shot footage. It's pretty stunning in its gracefulness and how dynamic and how assured it is, especially in the way Bing follows movement. Every time we cut back to it, and there are different skateboarding sequences that punctuate this film at different times, it's thrilling. And it's a diversion from all the trouble we're witnessing as viewers, just as it is for the subjects themselves. It's their diversion from the pain of their everyday lives and also the pain of their past that is very much haunting them. That opening credits montage in particular I think is so remarkable because it does what all great opening scenes should do without any dialogue here at all. We are introduced to each character, but even more than that, by watching them ride and the way it's shot and the way it's edited, we really get a sense of their personalities within the larger group and their personalities as individuals, those unique characteristics that come through just in how they move on those boards. And I think that's attributable to the comfort level between filmmaker and subject, and I think we'll get into that more a little bit later, but also how skilled Bing's eye is. And I think we should note, in addition to his eye, the editor, Joshua Altman, does a remarkable job with that footage, as he does with the film overall. And the music goes a long way, too. Turns out, we mentioned another Golden Brick candidate, a strong contender just a little bit ago, the writer, Nathan Halpern, did the music for that film and this one. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, the music is crucial, and I'm glad you mentioned the editing as well because the scenes where they are flowing down the streets will often get, you know, it's something that Terrence Malick uses a lot where we'll jump within the scene, Mm -hmm. slightly different angle, a few seconds ahead, uh, but looking at the same figure. And something like that is done, though we may switch to, say, Zach, if we were on Kier first, but the way it's edited, it forms almost 
a musical movement. Like it's a movement mm-hmm. in a next larger piece of music. And these things just slip into each other, the sequences, the exact images, so that ha- it has this cohesiveness and it does capture the sense of freedom and peacefulness that these kids or young men now do find when they're skateboarding. It also catches you know, something like when Kier botches a move and that rage does come mm-hmm. out of him and he'll smash his board. And so we get a little bit of that as well. Now, this is a documentary, so they're not characters, but it's what you would be called in another film, a character building moment yes. where it's all done through action, not through dialogue. Though, maybe this is another thing on your list, when we do get those first person interviews, the remarkable Um, candid nature of them Mm -hmm. and honesty and self-revelation that both Zach and Kier reveal is astonishing. And and that comes back to that relationship that Bing does have with them, obviously, and the comfort level they feel. For sure. It's so funny because you mentioned Terrence Malick, and I don't know if that comparison comes up in any writing about this film or any discussion of it. I wasn't thinking about Terrence Malick at all, though I did say gracefulness in talking about how they move and how the characters are shot when they ride those skateboards. But now I'm picturing those scenes, and I'm almost thinking of those characters like Jessica Chastain moving through that Waco, Texas environment, being out in nature This, of course, is shot in the city of Rockford. It still has that same kind of feel to it. And I think it is because of the editing and, of course, as well because of the way he shows them just so commanding that space and enjoying that space, the same way Malick characters enjoy their space in nature. I'm going to keep it on the craft a little bit more before we get into some of the more emotional stuff. The other thing for me that really stood out, Josh, is there's a montage near the end of the film. And montage might even be kind of the wrong word for it because it's very long and it is connected by music, the Nathan Halpern score, very subtly employed here. And it's not like it's quick cuts, but it is cross-cutting between different storylines in a way the rest of the film doesn't quite match. And it's the emotional climax of the film. And in the way all of the various character threads and thematic threads in the movie converge so powerfully for me – It's just an example of a director knowing the material so well and I think being so astute as a storyteller that he knew he could mine it for that connective tissue and then being so confident and astute enough as a visual storyteller to figure out the best way to cross cut and overlap sound and image at precisely the right moment so that it builds and it really does build to revelation. I was spent, absolutely spent watching that let's say maybe three minute sequence. Could it be too much? No. Because you're you're pointing out the one quibble I had about this film. Are you sure we're talking about the same sequence? I am because as you describe it, you're right. That that's accurate in how it works. And I almost found that sequence to be a mini trailer for the film itself and the way it condenses and compacts everything, not necessarily any missteps I could point to, but I think it stood out apart from me with the more natural flowing Mm. interaction of all these elements you talked about rather than it it kind of cramming is too strong of a word, but it kind of really pushes them together. I disagree with you strongly for two reasons. One, that's filmmaking. That's, as I said, knowing the material, recognizing the ways that they connect, finding those right beats to cut on. I thought it was perfect. And I would also say that unlike a trailer that functions as a sort of shorthand or maybe a crib sheet for the film, that sequence only works. Really, its only function and its only power is derived from everything that's built up to those moments that we've seen before. So for me, it was a culmination of 
all these different sort of realizations of these characters about their identity and the things they feel guilty about or are trying to make amends for in some way, those coming together in a way that felt certainly more calculated, I guess, if that's the right word, than the rest of the film feels, but still feels organic to me. Well, and I'll give it this, too. It does push things towards hope in a way that I did appreciate. And here we'll maybe get into some of the more emotional content that the film addresses, because this is a movie that goes to some dark places and some personal places. And so for that montage to bring us closer and really pull us along strongly to a place of potential healing, I was grateful for. And I think the movie overall earned, I think absolutely because of Bing's personal connection and experience with some of this darkness, I think he earned that right as well. So I do like that it brings us to a a place of, he's hoping for hope essentially here. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that matches in a lot of ways. Um, again, that freeing audaciousness of their movements on the skateboard, that that's what they're searching for. That's what we see them moving towards in a lot of those sequences. So it does tie up nicely at the end that way. I think what also stood out is the way Bing manages to tell a very small and specific story that truly becomes large and universal. What are those character and thematic threads that are all coming together? From the beginning of this film, you assume it's going to be about this kind of skateboarding life and it's going to be about adulthood and the struggles of these young men. Maybe that was in my head from a plot synopsis as well. You know, it will have to touch on this sort of larger notion of the death of the American dream to being shot in Rockford. The industry has largely dried up there. There are large sections of that city that would be considered impoverished. So, you know, it's going to hit those notes. And it does go there, but it also becomes, and maybe first and foremost, is a chronicle of domestic abuse. And that really stunned me. And I did see, actually, I haven't even finished the clip yet, but I started watching an interview with Bing Lou that's just on IMDb. It's like a two and a half minute interview, I think one answer to a question about what was the impetus for the film. And he tells a story about skateboarding with his buddies and it's Father's Day and they're all out skateboarding. And then someone kind of rolls up and says to them, it's Father's Day. Why are you guys all here? And it makes him realize that we do all have this in common. What is it about our disconnection from our families, from our fathers in particular, that we're all out here skateboarding with each other instead of being with them? And it's not that the movie becomes a different movie. Again, I'll use the word organic. It organically explores all those things. And then – adds this element of abuse because that is, unfortunately, such an organic everyday part of their lives, even if the abuse we find out for them happened many years before. And I think the level of empathy that Bing brings to this is really striking. There's a character in this film. I think we are, for the most part, certainly for the first half of the film, I think it's fair to say we are rooting for in a major way Mm -hmm. who does something that we hear about but don't witness ourselves that has to fundamentally alter our view of him as viewers. He does something that many people understandably would just say is flat out unforgivable. And Bing allows us to see him as a terribly flawed human being who is a danger to himself and potentially to others. But we do see him as a person, not in the way Hollywood movies take a villain or a bad guy, some monster, and try to show that we should have some empathy for him or he's really just like us. It's not anything like that whatsoever. We do just see him as a human being, a flawed human being, without in any way the movie mitigating his actions or glancing over it. In fact, it eventually does, and it had to, 
thankfully, confront it. Yeah, I think that's because the approach this film takes under Bing's direction is not accusatory, even though we find out he himself, as as I intimated, was a victim of childhood abuse. But it's always a project in search of understanding and healing. And so when that is revealed about the character, the instinct isn't to nail him or, you know, decry what we've learned. It's almost or make excuses. It, it almost or make excuses. It almost becomes like an intervention project mm-hmm. in a way. It sticks with yeah. him until it forces him to confront this as well. And so now we're getting into the the context I was referring to. This is why the movie takes on this larger emotive impact and larger sense of meaning is because as they the three of them learn that what they've always shared beyond this love of skateboarding is being victims of childhood abuse and the particular way that Bing goes on to explore this and and just look for at the very beginning you get a real sense especially in that scene with his mother he just wants understanding and Mm -hmm. so these first person interviews get really prickly including that one with his mother. And this is where another film came to mind, a pair of films for me that may seem to take place on completely different worlds. But Mm -hmm. I thought about Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, two documentaries that are obviously confronting terrors on a much larger scale, national scale, scale, Mm -hmm. historical scale. Um, And Minding the Gap is very intimate and personal, But it's a very similar form of cinema as confrontation, as confrontation towards healing, which Mm -hmm. I think you can describe those documentaries have as a prerogative as well. Yeah, and I love that comparison and that connection to those great films, especially The Act of Killing, another former Golden Brick winner, actually. But very different endeavors, as you touched on, partly because he really does want to expose the monster that's there within that character in Oppenheimer's There's case. There's way more accusation there in is. those two films, for sure. Yeah, I would agree absolutely. with that. But while we're talking about docs and movies like The Act of Killing and even The Look of Silence, which aren't maybe typical, that's another thing that really stood out to me here, is that we get this kind of meta element with this movie, this personal film, and it's very much about making a film without it being capital M meta. I love documentaries. You know that. I love thinking about documentaries, how documentaries are made, the filmmakers approach to truth, whatever strategies they're employing to get at that truth, all the different forms a doc can take, and also how self-aware documentaries often are now post Errol Morris, post Werner Herzog, whatever you want to say. Is it a fly on the wall documentary? Is it going to use archival footage? If you're the director and you're one of the characters in the movie, how much screen time do you give yourself? Is it basically then part personal essay? Are there going to be talking head interviews? When you are talking to someone or interviewing someone and you're standing right next to them with a camera and they turn to you, are they addressing you as the person they know or are they pretending that you're not really there or that you are this kind of third person that they're not really familiar with? All of these questions that documentary filmmakers wrestle with, usually in pre-production, and then sometimes decide to openly wrestle with in production and in post-production, in other words, call attention to that wrestling, they're all acknowledging the tradition and the form that they're working within. And a lot of times then they really want to show how I'm trying to subvert those traditions or whatever the case may be. And 
here with Bing Liu, he just really subtly does it. He combines all of those elements and forms. This film is all of those things at once, absolutely. But he never does it in a way that is about showing how clever he is as a filmmaker or how much he intellectually is processing these artistic questions. I feel as if he is just always doing what he thinks is appropriate for the moment. It's about capturing whatever the moment calls for. And he can sort of adapt just like he would on a skateboard to whatever is presented to him. And approaching it that way could feel messy. It could feel like a filmmaker hasn't put a lot of thought into it. You never feel that way here. No, it's it's very different than, say, John McEnroe in the realm of perfection. They're exploring a lot of those questions. Yeah. Maybe not all of them together, but uh, a lot of them. And they're very much on the surface there, which doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing. I no. think we both appreciated that film as well. But it, it answers those questions quite differently. Let's just say that. I want to go back to the figure you mentioned, and I'm glad you didn't name who, because it is such a shock to find out about this other side of their personality. And for me personally, it was eye-opening to the charm that a domestic abuser can have. Because fortunately, being on the outside of that situation from my life experience, you can sometimes wonder Mm -hmm. why, how you get trapped there. Like, how are you trapped by this person? And this movie shows you exactly how that happens. Because as you said, here is someone we're completely on their side. We understand their situation, their challenges. Um, And it's someone who's funny and it's someone who's caring, genuinely caring. Mm -hmm. And then that switch can flip or they show a different side of them. And it was the most incredibly revealing, again, it's not a character, but a character portrait that I've seen in any film all year all the more potent because it's an actual human being who is not playing up any of this. I mean, his awareness of this that happens in front of the camera, his Mm self-awareness is incredibly dramatic in a real-world way. It truly is. And I think that everything you're describing comes through only because of how caring Bing is as a person, as a filmmaker, and that his only endeavor here is to reflect their stories on screen and to tell their stories. He's created a safe place for them to do that. maybe a little bit more of a wholesome approach, for lack of a better term, than some other documentary filmmakers might employ. And that was the other aspect for me, Josh. We've already touched on it and danced around it a little bit, but just how personal it is and the way that he gets those responses from the characters because of how intimate and vulnerable they allow themselves to be in front of him, which really can only happen in special cases and in special examples of relationships between a filmmaker and subject. And they have this history. He has this history with all of these characters. And so that comfort level really comes through. And I'm going to jump off that a little bit here to praise the film. I was talking with our producer, Sam, over Slack about this movie this past weekend. And he talked about another film that we both love from this year, and said that as much as he loves Minding the Gap, he's all in on it as well. He likes this other film a little bit better, and he was just thinking about these filmmakers, and he pointed out that this film is Bing's life's work. I mean, I would say it's the movie he was preparing to make even when he didn't know he was preparing to make a movie, right? So it's reasonable to wonder, kind of in that arbitrary exercise we do here on the show sometimes, like when you're picking between two Golden Brick nominees, which way would I lean? Someone like Chloe Zhao, who makes the writer, I could see me or Sam or you or anyone else saying, well, that's a filmmaker. It doesn't matter what the material is. The vision 
is so strong. And I loved what they're bringing as far as their craft that I'm going to watch whatever film they make. And then you wonder what could Bing do next? And could he do anything that could match a movie like this because of how personal it is? And my response to that is that all the elements we've touched on so far, the artistry that he brings, the intelligence, the sensitivity that he brings, the care, the empathy, I think he would bring that to whatever the material is. Whatever is next for him, I think he'll find a way to make it a personal story. So I'm just as all in on him as a documentary filmmaker, and there is a big difference between doc films and narrative films and sort of evaluating directors that way. But for me, I don't really see as much of a disconnect, I guess. It's a fair question, and it does have ramifications for thinking about these golden bricks that we give out. But I'll say this. I'm often skeptical about first-person personal essay documentaries just because I've seen a lot of them that don't go much further than that person's head. Mm -hmm. And some of them – you know, you could still be stuck in someone's head and it's a fascinating place to be. Um, but often that's not the case with these. I have not seen many done as well as this in terms of looking at your story or the story of the people very close to you and seeing that there is something here to be told that will be of interest and be of importance to larger audiences and knowing the way to go about it. So the fact that he managed to pull that off is yeah. hugely encouraging. I agree. This film is a very personal movie, not just because his story becomes part of the larger story, but there is this element that is introduced and he goes back to a couple times that is about him as a filmmaker or at least – about him being someone who is trying to find his voice and kind of define his identity. And he openly asks the question at one point, why me? Why am I dealing with my pain in this way? Which is telling the story and trying to be an artist. And my friends are dealing with it in these very different ways. And safe to say, at least in the case of one of them, for sure, more destructive ways. But he's never doing it. He's never asking that question from a place of judgment. It's not about their failure. It's always just about that element of curiosity. He really wants to know. He really wants to explore that. And I think that curiosity is another huge part of what makes this film a special one. Minding the Gap is out now. You can actually watch it on Hulu, and it is getting a limited run. It's opening here at the Siskel in Chicago this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. More small films that deserve your attention are ahead, including Madeline's Madeline and John McEnroe in the realm of perfection. We'll also play Massacre Theater, and yes, dear listener, I saw the Happy Time murders, so you didn't have to. And guess what? I didn't hate it. Nobody's surprised by this. Stay with us. Today I run this race Like I do every day Hit the finish line with grace And restart the next day There's a stitch in my side it slows down every stride Forget my need for air I just pretend that it's not there It's not there Pretend that it's not there It's not there There's a grief that's unobserved We're convinced it's what we deserve and I see it in the eyes of my friends Drinking coffee across from them There's a pain that's unexplained
you squeeze your eyes tight enough, you can almost see the sun. Problem is, it don't work if your eyes are always wide open. That's a clip from the trailer for Jordana Spiro's Night Comes On. It's Spiro's debut film as a director. It's a revenge story about two sisters, one 18, just out of juvenile detention, the other just 10, tracking down the man that killed their mother. Night Comes On had its debut at Sundance this year and is currently available, playing in limited release and on demand. Now, Josh, I'm going to confess, before you mention the title of this film last week as a movie you might get to, and then everything I just said about it and the clip I heard, well, that's the extent of my knowledge about this film, Night Comes On. Tell me a little bit more about it. Tell me if it's good. Tell me if you think it's golden brick worthy. Well, that's why we're doing this show, right? Indeed. A lot of these films are like this. I forget how it first came to my attention, but it was relatively recently as well. And you touched on a few of the reasons why it should be considered for a golden brick. First time feature filmmaker here, Jordana Spiro. She co-wrote the screenplay with Angelica Nwandu, and it's partly based on Nwandu's experiences as a foster child. And I think that's important because um, it's sort of an outsider coming to a story she hasn't experienced, but I think it's handled well. We might compare it to something like eighth grade. Um, where it's not born out of the filmmaker's direct experience but still has a level of authenticity to it. You can certainly sense that here. As far as the artistic vision or ambition to it, it's maybe more straightforward than a lot of our Golden Brick contenders, though I do really like this recurring ghostly element involving the mother and the older daughter, the 18-year-old played by Dominique Fishback. On occasion, she'll she'll have a vision of her and remembering her, including a very arresting one where Angel, the girl, has to basically just lay down in a tile lobby of an apartment building because she's found nowhere to stay once getting out of juvenile detention. And as she sleeps, her mother's image kind of cuddles behind her and caresses her. And this is also indicative, I think, of the movie's insistence on paying attention to small, tender touches. It's a very rough story in a lot of ways, but Spiro's camera always finds its way to notice um, a moment where Abby, the younger sister, played by Tatum Marilyn Hall, just reaches out and grabs her older sister's hand and holds it. Um, Another moment in the foster home where Abby lives, a toddler comes running through the room and just instinctively hugs Angel and won't let go. And we see a lot of this, uh, this tenderness, these little glimpses of it that represent uh, what these two sisters are in such dire need of and haven't had for their lives and uh, the hope and sustenance that it can give them when they do get it, even in these small ways. So I do think it's definitely worth checking out. I think Spiro, who I believe has worked mostly as an actress before this, including on the television series Ozark, I think she is a talent to watch, especially, again, like I said, with an eye for other stories that she can approach uh, with respect and bring to life. Night Comes On. It's currently playing, again, in limited release and available to rent on demand. We'd love to hear your thoughts if you've seen it. A couple local notes here, Josh. Our Chicago listeners know that they can go to filmspotting.net 
slash events to find run of engagement passes or advanced screening passes, including run of engagement passes to the new period horror film, The Little Stranger. It opens this weekend in limited release. It's directed by Lenny Abramson, who gave us Room and Frank, and it stars Donald Gleason. We also have admit two passes to a Wednesday, September 5th screening of Peppermint. This is Another revenge movie, Josh, a thriller starring Jennifer Garner. Saw that trailer today. She's very, very angry. That's all I can tell you. Okay. Filmspotting.net slash events. In our show notes at Filmspotting.net, we will link to more information about this wonderful event that we have been partaking in for at least a few years now, the 70 millimeter Film Festival at Chicago's beloved Music Box Theater. It starts September 14th, so a few weeks off. You've got some time to plan. It runs through the 27th. The tickets are on sale now. There are 12 films playing this year. Josh, what stands out to you? Well, they are going to do 2001 of Space Odyssey again. I think they have that just about every year. Mm-hmm. And if you have not had the 70 millimeter experience, you have to do it. That was the family choice last year. They'll also have West Side Story. I think these are new titles this year. The Dark Crystal, very tempting for me to go see that I'm one. I'm sure it is. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Patton, The Remains of the Day, Silverado, The Sound of Music, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, The Thing. What are you laughing about? I'm just waiting for you to say something terrible about Star Trek. I can't remember if that's a bad one or a really bad oh, one. you think it's a great one. <laughs> is that the one I like? Oh, I'm sure you love it. Uh, oh, it is the one I like. Is it? Yeah. With the, I thought it was um, five. No. Well, it's the one with the Vulcan, the, the like religious cult leader Vulcan. I think it might be the Undiscovered Country. It's been a while. Anyway, at the 70-millimeter festival is also going to be The Thing, if I haven't mentioned The Thing, Year of the Dragon, and how about this? A new 70-millimeter print of David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, so we're going to have a little bit more on that in just one second. But first, I want to go back to some of those titles. What have you circled for you and the family to attend? We're doing Lawrence of Arabia. Okay, that's the only one? Yeah, that's the only one I think we can all make. So Okay, well— I'm being way more ambitious about this. Okay. I've got planned right now to take Sophie back to see West Side Story, which we saw a few years ago at the 70mm Film Festival. This was pre-Hamilton, pre-Musicals Obsessed Sophie. Ah, okay. And she thought West Side Story was fine. <laughs> now she worships it. So I'm excited for her to see that movie again. I'm really excited to take the kids. I think I'm taking all three of the older kids to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. My son Quinn, in particular, has not seen this one, and I think he'll love it. I'm trying to force myself, not that it would be hard other than making the time commitment, to go see Patton. Because, as regular listeners know, it's a huge regret of mine. So you've got to do that. Big, you've got to do big it. big movie I'm ashamed that I've never seen. And what better way than to see it on the big screen in 70 mil at the Music Box I kind of want to go see Remains of the Day again just because I love that film so much. And finally, The Thing. Right now, Holden and I are going to see that. My 16-year-old son, I'm taking him to see The Thing for the first time. Midnight showing on a Saturday at the Music Box. I think he's going to love it. Very cool. Now, we are also going to see Holden, my son who is obsessed with all things geopolitics and geography. He's going to accompany me to Lawrence of Arabia. We will probably see you there at that screening of David Lean's film. And then... We're going to talk about it the next week here on Film Spotting. Maybe we'll have to bring Holden on as our expert. Sure. Tell us everything they got wrong. Indeed. <laughs> that Friday show, so Friday, September 21st, is when you will hear our Sacred Cow conversation about Lawrence of Arabia. And we're tossing around a possible top five David Lean scenes. We are, which slash would moments. require a little bit of homework, though. We also determined behind the scenes that 
I've seen his five big ones. So yeah. even if I did no other homework, I could concoct a list, but maybe I can fill in some blanks here. So there you go. And we've got some time and it's fun homework. I watched Blythe Spirit over the weekend, had never seen that. I don't know if I'll get a scene or a moment out of it, but it was enjoyable. Glad it was still I saw edifying. It. Yeah, edifying. And I also want to clear my name on the Star Trek front. Um, Star Trek Six, The Undiscovered Country, sorry, music Just don't box bother. is terrible. Terrible. I I can't believe I forgot this. The Vulcan in this one is a sexy Vulcan played by Kim Cattrall. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, totally. And and how did I forget that supermodel Iman was in this one? Huh. So, no, not one of my favorite Star Trek. You're not going to be seeing that. I will not be seeing that. And no sacred cow conversation about that one. More information about the 70 millimeter film festival will be in the notes for the show or at musicboxtheater.com. All right, so this isn't going to be in 70 millimeter, but it should still be fun. It's Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein for free on the big screen. I plugged this last show. There are still some slots to see this. I'm going to be part of the panel discussion afterwards with friend of the show, Steve Procopi. So I wanted to mention once more that it's going to be 7.30 p.m. September 5 at the York Theater in Elmhurst. That's just outside of Chicago here. It is courtesy of the Thomas Ford Memorial Library, and although it's free, they do want you to register, so we'll link to where you can do that in the show notes. I mean, I know I wasn't available, but you just replaced me that quick. Just just right up on stage with another host. It was like, I know where I'm going, no problem. Fantastic. Okay, last week, we confounded many of you, it seems, with our new poll question. We asked, what is Ethan Hawke's best non-Richard Linklater, non-2018 performance? This was confusing on Two levels. (laughs) One we'll get to in a moment. The first one was it apparently just confused people because they didn't read it. We got some votes in other that were for Richard Linklater performances and a 2018 performance first reformed. Okay, so that's people who maybe didn't hear the show but went right to the poll? Exactly. Okay. And then kind of misread it, went over it too quickly. Okay. And thought we just left those out. I can see how that would happen. Maybe that was just an act of rebellion. They were like, I read the question, but it's so dumb. That's more like our listeners. I'm going to write in First Reformed. (laughs) I feel so strongly about First Reformed or one of those Linklater films. I'm writing it in. We gave you these options, though, instead. All right. Todd Anderson from Dead Poet Society. Troy Dyer. He's in Reality Bites. Hamlet himself from Michael Almereda's Hamlet. How about Jake in Training Day or Hank from Sidney Lumet's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead? There was, of course, the other option. That's where we were getting some of those incorrect write-in responses. For us, it was really just a matter of trying to think about Ethan Hawke's filmography by not going to the one that's most obvious in people's minds right now, that great performance in First Reformed. And then I think the character he's probably most well-known for, at least among film spotting listeners, his role as Jesse in the Before Trilogy. The other bit of confusion comes in when we were teasing next week's show. You're going to hear my interview with Ethan Hawke, where we were talking about the new film that he directed called Blaze. And we're going to share with special guest Keith Phipps our top five, I think we're doing Ethan Hawke scenes, not well, characters. Well, see, this is, this is where my confusion On came our in. production meeting. <laughs> My confusion is I took this poll as my direction for that. Well, top that's five what listeners list. did too. Yes. And that's not what I intended. That was the other bit of confusion is people said, okay, if you're leaving out first reformed and all those Linklater films, then I got to come up with a top five characters or Linklater scenes that don't include those. And no, it was just for the poll. Okay. Well, I, I'm, I'm on board now. I understand now. Yes, I think we are doing scenes. Yes. Scenes slash moments. We're going to drill down and we're allowed to do Linklater films. 
and we're allowed to talk about first reform. We are. Now, okay. there's a reason why I was hesitant to do this list. I'm not going to spoil it here, though spoil is really the wrong word, but actually it comes up in my conversation with Ethan Hawke. My love for those Linklater films, and in particular, some of the scenes he's been in, just kind of makes this redundant territory I for see. me. So I'm going to try to find a way around that. Okay. We'll see if I pull it off with next week's top five, which is indeed Ethan Hawke scenes. Slash moments. Slash moments. And we're looking at his entire filmography. Yes. Even movies from 2018. Now, and even Richard Linklater directed movies. Who's going to explain all this to Keith, you or me? <laughs> I'm going to let you do it. Great. Because I'm apparently not doing a good job of setting this up. We will also note that we may have erred in overlooking Hawk's performance in Gattaca as one of the choices. It's by far the biggest other option. There are more write-in votes for Gattaca than what Hamlet got or Urge NX or Troy Dyer actually getting fewer votes than Gattaca. But that's because way before we get to David Lean, I've got some Ethan Hawke homework to do. Haven't seen Gattaca? Gattaca is on the list. Oh, I love Gattaca. Really good. You'll enjoy it. Andrew Nickel, right? That's the director right. behind that film. You can vote now in that poll if you're not too confused at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. We will share the results of that poll on next week's show. I know you can't wait. A State of Confusion is exactly where we should be for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. I'll get some chow in you before we go to the office. My dollar. Ah, oh, thank you, sir. But, uh, hey. All right, fine. Don't. It's nice here. May I read my paper? I'm sorry, sir. Thank I... you. You know what? I'll get something to eat. No, hell no, you won't. You f*** that up. I'm trying to read my paper. Please, shut up. Now, I sure wouldn't mind not roasting a hot black and white all summer. <laughs> Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. So Denzel Washington, of course, is Alonzo with Ethan Hawke's Jake in Training Day, written by David Ayer, directed by Antoine Fuqua. That massacre was part of episode 693, where we reviewed Spike Lee's Black Klansman, and we shared our top five Spike Lee shots. Lawrence Cruz in Los Angeles writes in, nice job on the diner scene from Training Day. Wow, he's being generous. <laughs> I was hoping you would run it till the end, though, of course, that would have been too long for a massacre theater scene. But the way Denzel continually unbalances Ethan Hawke's rookie officer is so compelling and a disturbing foreshadowing of what's to come. Sorry, Lawrence. I just wanted to put my terrible Denzel out of its misery. Mike Cahotis in Deerfield, Illinois. As mentioned in the episode, Denzel is the father of Black Klansman star John David Washington. Denzel has teamed up with Spike Lee in the films Inside Man, Malcolm X, He Got Game, and Mo Better Blues. Training Day also features an interracial pairing of two cops working together in undercover work, like in Black Klansman. Training Day is loosely inspired by the true story of the Rampart corruption scandal in the LAPD, which was also the inspiration for the TV show The Shield. And Black Klansman is also based on a true story, though it sticks much closer to the truth in that case. So Mike did a very nice job of summarizing the connections and why we went with that scene in Training Day in the show where we reviewed Black Klansman and talked about our favorite Spike Lee shots. Now, I will point out here that not all of those options were on the mind of our wonderful producer when he picked this scene. Somehow, he picked Training Day having forgotten, as you did, that I had previously, on another episode, mentioned that John David Washington was Denzel's son. You guys totally just forgot that. I'm so glad to hear that Sam doesn't listen to you either. <laughs> no, he doesn't. And 
He went with this scene just because of the spike connection with Denzel and the fact that it's undercover cops. There you go. He didn't even know. He didn't even know (laughs) that the star of Black Klansman was Denzel's son. Okay, deeper we go into the connections. Our listeners are always good for that. Caleb McCandless in Concord, New Hampshire. In addition to the actor connections, both Training Day and Black Klansman are about rookie cops getting a shot at something big within the force. Here's Josh Ashenmiller from L.A. Denzel's character is just trying to read his morning newspaper. In Black Klansman, Denzel's son's character is reading the morning newspaper when he notices an advertisement for the KKK, which starts all the craziness. Our listeners are good. Jeremy Burgess says, here's a somewhat deeper connection. Corey Hawkins, who plays the fiery Kwame Ture in Black Klansman, received a breakthrough role in 2015 straight out of Compton for playing a young Dr. Dre. And who could forget... The Dr. Dre himself plays a supporting role in Training Day, though he might honestly give one of the worst performances I've ever seen, Jeremy says. Now, I'll raise my hand. I forgot Dr. Dre himself was in Training Day. But now that I know it's one of the worst performances Jeremy's ever seen, I kind of want to watch it. It could not have been worse than my Denzel. Devin Jolly Jackboot Wombold from Long Island City, New York. The connections are that this film stars John David Washington's papa, Denzel, as well as Adam's papa, Ethan Hawke. Sorry, couldn't resist. And I couldn't resist including it here in the listener (laughs) feedback because it's not inaccurate. Finally, Aaron Fenn in Sherman Oaks, California, says, Interestingly enough, my wife and I watched Training Day about two months ago because she had never seen it. One of the main reasons we watched it was because we went to a wedding in July where Ethan Hawke was in attendance. No. Safe to say, while I wanted nothing more than to fanboy out, express to him how much I loved the Before trilogy and how brilliant I thought his performance was in First Reformed, I was way too intimidated to say anything other than a casual cheers when we both happened to get a beer at the same time at the bar. That's the way to play it. That's the way to play it? Well done. What would make you, who would make you fanboy out, Josh? Because Ethan Hawke would be it, and I had him sitting right where you're sitting, and I somehow... I somehow kept my cool. I, I think we know. Don't did you forget oh, yeah, my Miguel Arteta oh, story Miguel Arteta. from Sundance? Oh, that's right, where you were speechless. You got all tongue tied. <laughs> or actually, you said something. I said you something. just said something really awkward. Yeah, it was. Uh, I praised him for Cedar Rapids, and I believe his response was something along the lines of, "Oh, you're the one." <laughs> Nicely done, Josh. Why don't you reach in to the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner? The winner is Ryan Jones from Cookville, Tennessee. Congratulations, Ryan. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t shirt. What happened to the cannoli line? Max. You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his cannoli. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. And we move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, a funny voices edition, sort of, at least for one of us. And Josh, you will be doing the honors as usual. We've been assigned parts. I'm more curious why Sam Sam thought you needed to play this particular role. No, I think it's about you playing that particular role. No, no. He said, he said, uh, I think Adam should be. Well, I I think he must believe you have this. No, no. I can read between the lines. What he is really saying is don't let Adam try to do the good part. Oh, okay. Well, he wants his star to be the star. Thanks for looking out for me, Sam. Okay. Are you ready, star? Yeah. Because you're going to start it off. So I'm going to give you the action and action. See, what I want to do here is strip Richard Bear, metaphorically. Let's get rid of the hump. Let's get rid of the twisted extremities and show him the way he would be today. The queen who wanted to be king. Yes? Question. Are you serious? Now, what's the objection, Elliot? Well, number one, I have to play it. Number two, 
I like the hump and the club foot. Uh, number three, I've been working on the part for three months. Well, I respect that. I mean, that's why we're here, isn't it? To exchange ideas. Tell me, how do you see Richard? Mr. Macho, is that it? No, uh, look, I don't think the guy is a linebacker for the Chicago Bears, but let's not throw away one of his prime motivations. Oh, and what's that? He wants to hump Lady Anne. Yes, I've heard that before. And? And? Scene. I think you did pretty well. I, wish I think I, Sam was right. He I wish I knew who right. I was doing. That's true. We don't even know what actor <laughs> you're imitating there. Can I tell you something? And this will be an admission, and I'm going to be taking a task for this. I had no idea this movie existed until Sam suggested it. Wow. <laughs> a little clue there for the listeners. Okay, but here's another clue. I especially say wow because a clip from this movie has been used multiple times well, it in mean, this show's history. It doesn't mean I've seen it. This I've is been true. confused multiple times in the show's history. <laughs> yes, you have. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 10th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. You had some sugar for goofer, friend? <laughs> I just want to know what you know about the Happy Time murders. Oh. Goofer give you a happy time. Oh, oh, for 50 cents, I'll suck your <laughs> Now, see, this is where Sam and I were really hoping that we were going to get to play the Larson Recommends theme. Oh, man. To lead into... You were hoping. Oh, yeah. And you too, of course. Hoping. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you were. To lead into this very brief discussion, one-sided discussion of the happy time murders. It worked out pretty well for us. It seems that the film that we thought here on the show we might devote an entire segment to instead it got pushed back and now it's only getting maybe two or three minutes from you josh but you did oh, there, there's go gonna see be a it. timer on me huh i mean maybe <laughs> there should be i'm gonna start the clock right now you did go see it you're a glutton for punishment it's been billed by some people we respect yeah more than one person we respect yes. As the worst film of the year. This is true. Are they wrong? And I wanted so badly to ride to the rescue that was, besides my interest that I've had in this film for a long time now, the withering reviews that came out made me really want to see this. It's not the worst film of the year. I know one that I've enjoyed less, and I'm sure people who have seen many more films than me this year could name other films that are worse. It's not great. It's got major problems. But it does have some really funny moments, and I think the major problem probably with this, which is the explicit R-rated, let's call it Muppet-adjacent project. It's directed by Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, features puppets, but has no affiliation with the Muppets brand otherwise. Um, You know, the thing that it forgets about the Muppets is they were always irreverent. They were always, you know, half of the comedy came from, say, Kermit trying to keep a lid on impudence and mockery. So for a movie to try to make the shift from that to this sort of explicit rebelliousness, it's just not really all that shocking Hmm. to me, I guess. And when they double down on that stuff, it really doesn't work. And I think that's probably the prime issue here and the issue that a lot of people have had with it is it's just going for the most crass, raunchy gag or vulgar language it can. And that in and of itself just isn't funny. Now, is the idea – there's a clever idea here and that is to basically make a Hollywood noir with 
puppets and particularly in Hollywood where puppets are like second class citizens. So disrespected. And there's something funny about that. There's something really funny about the main character, Phil Phillips, voiced by a Muppet veteran, Bill Beretta. He's a jaded former police detective who's now working as a private eye. And the times this works are – think about the great bicycle scene in The Great Muppet Caper, OK, where they're all riding through the park and it's just allowing the puppeteer's creativity within their limitations to go wild. It's funny. It's amusing. And you're also wondering how in the world did they do that? OK, so transplant something like that here. And this Phil Phillips, because he's this noir character, is always smoking and he just spews this plume of smoke out of his mouth that is funny on its own. It's a visual sight gag that works. You're also wondering, this is a puppet. How did they get a puppet to do that? Um, it's also spoofing on classic Hollywood films. So, yeah, it's funny and it's, I guess, R-rated or at least PG-13. But it's about so much more. It also ties in with his character. There's another scene I won't detail but is notorious for anyone who's seen this. Let's just say it involves Phil and a nymphomaniac client. Um, for one thing, it's not tied to his character at all. It's something like that comes out of nowhere you know how they're doing it. It's not really that creative. It's just <laughs> doing what, Josh? gross. Okay? And so that's where the emphasis shifts. Uh, it's just there's a difference between those two examples, and the movie mostly puts its eggs in the basket of the latter case. I also will say I haven't read any of those terrible reviews, and I wonder if this is why some people are putting in the worst movie of the year category. It doesn't handle this aspect, the societal implications of saying puppets are discriminated against because – the movie even makes jokes about skin color or felt color. And so you're bringing in a lot of racial connotations there that the film isn't really up to exploring. And so there's some stuff that falls really flat um, that I could see people getting quite upset about and calling out and maybe saying why it was mm. the worst film of the year for them. For me – not entirely successful. My my clock is up, so I can't probably go into why You're Melissa, overtime, Melissa McCarthy, you know, thankfully she brings some ad-libbing here uh, that does liven up a few of these set pieces. But mostly this is another case of her stuck in a film. She's a producer on this too, um, where it's a lot of mean-spirited jokes at her expense. Maya Rudolph's really good in it. There's a fair amount that did make me laugh. It's not disastrous. It's fascinating, but it doesn't really work. All I want to clip out from that whole rant, that like five and a half rant. minute rant – that's what I want to call it. <laughs> Defending the happy time murders is the part where you said it's about so much more. Did I say <laughs> you that? Had those exact lines. Maybe I'm I taking them out of context, but it's you about said, so much more. It's about so much more. I think I was referring to the uh, smoking scene. Okay. The smoking scene really is just about so, about much, so more. much, Adam. Okay. I don't know where we go from there, but I will remind you, even though it seems no one is really going to see this film, that it is out now in wide release. It might no longer be out by the time. That's true. Tell <laughs> us why it is, airs. in fact, the worst movie of the year in Josh's Wrong. Feedback at filmspotting.net. So if only Brian Henson was a new director, then I could argue for Happy Time Murders as a Golden Brick candidate. Alas, we'll get to a couple of worthier titles when we come back. Madeline's Madeline and John McEnroe in the realm of perfection. Stay with us. You see someone else Oh. 
Josh, time to get to a few thank yous. I teased it on last week's episode that I hope to fit in one of these segments. We haven't really had a chance over the past month or so, have had a lot of jammed shows, hopefully a lot of good content for our listeners, but we have had many generous listeners who have donated a few of their hard-earned dollars our way in support of the show, whether it's a one-time donation or they signed up to be a regular donor. We start with a shout-out to Rodney Wade in Frederick, Maryland, a shout out saying happy birthday, Rodney Wade. Happy birthday, Rodney. We also wanted to share this feedback from Ira in Chicago who donated and was provoked to donate because of one recent provocative discussion. I've listened to your show for years, never donated, never made a comment. But after your heated, sometimes personally critical debate about the Terminator, I had to finally pony up. All your points were valid. Not great dialogue, debatable acting, overly stereotypical characters. Not valid. Did you mention the crusty but benign police sergeant and arrogant, inept psychiatrist? But still, a film by a master that left us all wanting more. I can't ask that all your discussions be as contentious. I'm not a reality TV producer. But when it's genuine, it's awesome. Thanks for the many hours of listening pleasure. It was genuine, Ira. Who, who took that personal? Did you? Did I? I don't know what he's referring to. I, I don't think insulting Michael Bean implies I'm insulting Adam. I took that very hard. I don't know what you're talking about. Darren also wrote in, your most recent episode helped me appreciate the show even more deeply. He's referring to just last week's top five things we've learned from podcasting. And Darren says, and Dave Chen's number five finally prompted me to send a thank you, both by way of this donation and by way of my recent email. He did send in his top five things he's learned about movies and podcasts by listening to film spotting, and he even followed our lead. He used some quotes from some of his own Pantheon films. We don't have time for it now, but I do expect that on a future show, we get into some of that feedback in a little bit more detail. I hope we get to share Darren's top five, because not only is it just good stuff that he obviously put a lot of time into, but I'll tell you, Josh, I don't know if you saw the email or not, his five that he landed on really are five things I think me, you, and Sam would all point to as kind of the five purposes of this show, even though we don't talk about any of those things in this way. I think he nailed it. All right. I'm going to have to track that down. Yeah. We also got a Silver Club donation from Kevin in the cinematically named Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Thank you, Kevin. And we have a new $5 a month donor. Actually, he's not so new because he donated a while back and I think I missed it. And so we are finally making up for it now. Adam Grossman, Vancouver, B.C. I signed up as a donor to the show a few months back, and I'm really happy I did. You guys have brought me many, many hours of listening joy and movie education. While I didn't get a shout-out on one of your donation segments, I was hoping I could throw my recommendations your way for the best movies of the first half of 2018 show. There have been a few standouts for me from the first six months of the year. The movie that wowed me the most, both watching at home and on the big screen, was Alex Garland's Annihilation, the most cinematically weird sci-fi since Garland's predecessor, Ex Machina, and Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. I'll never complain about being given stories and images which both please the senses and expand the mind. My top five would also include The Ferociously Lean and Mean You Were Never Really Here by Lynn Ramsey, The Sonic Landscape and Perfectly Pitched Ending of John Krasinski's A Quiet Place, and the wonderful fable-like qualities and knockout performance of Charlie Plummer in Andrew Hayes' Lean on Pete. But after all that darkness and tone, no movie has brought me more joy so far in 2018 than Paddington 2. I wept countless times from both laughter and emotion. 
Knuckles McEntee for the Oscar. <laughs> I'm on board a great list, a nice eclectic list there from Adam. Thank you for that, and thank you for the donation. A gold-level donation comes to us from Isaiah, who says, I've been listening for ages, but I'm a bad person, so I haven't given until now. I think what changed it is that I started my own podcast and realized how much support like this matters. Keep up the good work, and same to you, Isaiah. Best of luck with the show. We also got a gold-level donation from Eric. Thanks for all the great commentary and highlighting underappreciated filmmakers such as Roy Anderson, Elaine May, and Agnes Varda. While I can't get on board with your enthusiasm for, say, Wes Anderson's last two overly precious films, or Christopher Nolan's whole emotionally autistic oeuvre, whoa, film spotting's commentary always makes me reconsider even my most hardened of opinions. Keep up the good work. Sounds like we've got a lot of work to do a yet lot of with work Eric. To do there with Eric. Platinum Club donation. A a Platinum Club donation comes to us from Craig in Naples, Florida. And finally, Scott in Western Kansas. Listeners may remember Scott from Western Kansas from last year and actually many other years where he has given so generously to the show. And he's the guy who a few years back gave a lot of money and said, I would love for a portion of this to go to you guys in support of the show, but also go to a deserving film student. However you guys decide to use that money, give it to someone to help bring about sort of a new generation of filmmakers. And I always loved that project, and I always loved the idea of helping to facilitate it. And just to be honest, for a year or two, I didn't really know what to do with it. I felt like there were so many different routes we could go and colleges we could contact. I was a little bit paralyzed by the pressure of it. And then last year, we found a fantastic organization that accomplishes everything we would want to with this donation. Women in Film, they're based out of L.A. They advocate for and advance the careers of women working in the screen industries. The goal is to achieve parity and transform the culture. And any money that's donated to Women in Film funds vital programming, including scholarships, mentoring, and grants. And if you're curious and maybe want to donate yourself, you can learn more at womeninfilm.org. But because of Scott's generosity, we're able, in the name of Film Spotting, to donate $750 to the cause. That's really amazing, Scott. Thanks so much for making that happen. Nice guys don't win in this game. Basically, it's a sport for killers. John McEnroe always finds a way to win. That's from the trailer for John McEnroe in the Realm of Perfection, a very non-traditional new sports documentary from director Julian Farrow. More on that film in just a bit. But first, we do want to talk about what, in some circles anyway, is one of the more acclaimed movies of the year so far, Josephine Decker's Madeline's Madeline. It is a movie about a young girl, a teenager named Madeline, who is part of a theater troupe, has a role in some new project that the theater instructor Evangeline played by Molly Parker is really pushing her let's say to fully invest herself in including maybe doing some tricks along the way to try to get her maybe to where she wants her to be and as they say the lines between reality and fantasy start to blur lines that we've seen blur in other films Josh that are about this topic including let's say Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan I'm going to go back to your setup for Minding the Gap that started the show and ask you to tell me what elevates this film, what separates this film anyway, or how does it fall short? I think Black Swan is a great film to compare this to. It did come to mind to me as well while I was watching this. I think 
what sets it apart for me is related to the word you used, blurring, the literal blurring that Decker and her cinematographer, Ashley Connor, do to convey the inner headspace of Madeline. We'll frequently get images where Madeline's face comes into focus, but everything behind her kind of fades away and just blurs away. And there's also some interesting sound design going on here to get us in that headspace as well. Some knocking, it seemed like to me, unidentifiable knocking, labored breathing mm-hmm. we hear a lot. And um, it's it's intense. I mean, this this movie is an intense visual experience getting a sense of what sort of challenges Madeline is facing on her own, independent of this acting troupe. And then once the emotions start getting ratcheted up within the troupe, how that does affect her as well. I mean, there we see there are good things about her participating in this community and help her maybe move to a healthier place. Mm-hmm. But as things continue to develop and the director's intentions become more exploitative, yes. then they begin to unravel and that sensory experience becomes heightened in the film as well. So I think that's probably uh, its hallmark. And mm-hmm. then we can maybe talk about um, that although I appreciate and saw how the movie wanted us to be in this fog, I still needed a little bit more clarity for us to get a sense of who Madeline was as a character and as a person um, that the rest of the film didn't quite provide hmm. me. I think we're in a similar space, though. I might have a little bit more admiration overall for what it did to me as a sensory experience. And you touched on a lot of the reasons why. But this is a movie that made me profoundly uncomfortable for pretty much its entire running time. It's not about real violence being inflicted on people and real graphic violence, though a fair amount of imagine violence is certainly presented to us. But people aren't being punished on screen. It's the discomfort, though, of some of the exchanges and these scenes of confrontation where characters push the scene that they might be in a little too far And a lot of times they're doing it in front of another audience of people as well. And there's just this awkwardness that is hell to exist in, even as a viewer (laughs) who is watching it from a distance. And secondly, I want to point out that I do mean that, that it made me profoundly uncomfortable as a compliment, because I did feel like I understood those central relationships well enough to make me discomforted by those exchanges. And Decker here has really given us immersive theater it's immersive filmmaking and that immersive theater is actually a phrase that a character the theater instructor uses at one point later in the film and it was the word immersive that had been in my head from the moment the movie started with some of those blurry images and it comes within the midst of the toughest scene in the entire film to watch but you're right josh it's the shaky imagery the out of focus imagery that sometimes Ashley Connor, the cinematographer you mentioned, will rack focus to do a kind of shot, reverse shot, but it feels more immediate because it's all captured within one shot. The sound design you touched on, the score by Caroline Shaw, I think all works to add a lot of tension. The close-ups and the POV shots, sometimes through masks, there are these pig masks that they wear, (laughs) that they practice in, that I thought was just part of their theater training, but actually are part of this larger show that they're doing and part of their characters but we spend a lot of time within that mask and hearing that labored breathing and these pig noises you spend a large chunk of the movie in general inside madeline's headspace which i maybe can only equate to being 
inside John Malkovich's headspace, except if Malkovich was perpetually in that film in a dream state. That's what it's like experiencing this entire movie. Yeah, I would describe it as psychological discomfort. I think that's what I experienced. And what I admired about the film is the way it was able to put me in that place. I did not connect with that other element you're talking about, the relational discomfort. I totally get what you mean about the acting scenes. Like this movie made it clear to me why I was never drawn to the acting craft at all because mm-hmm. I just could not put myself out there the way these people admirably do. So I sense that I mean, that you kind discomfort. of go for it in Master <laughs> Theater. <laughs> That's exhibit A, right? Yeah. So that discomfort I did feel, but I didn't feel that re- the relationships between Madeline and her mother particularly, played by Miranda July, I, f- I felt like there was something um, thinly sketched about the world outside of Madeline's Head. And it's not just because we're only given her point of view. The movie does move away from that on occasion. And in those scenes, things to me felt vague and elusive in a way that that wasn't helpful in conveying Madeline's psychological state. It was just not helpful really in adding anything to the experience of the film as a narrative. I do think the sequences with Molly Parker as the theater troops director are a little bit stronger. The movie kind of shifted into gear, the point where Madeline starts to push back against her and mm-hmm. starts to mess with her head. And it was like, all of a sudden I felt, okay, here we go. Things are going somewhere. And then that's kind of thrown aside um, for a climactic moment that's visually arresting, sure. but somewhat comes out of nowhere narratively for me. So I guess the only way I can describe it is that despite all these immersive aesthetics, Madeline seemed – she remained frustratingly at a distance mm-hmm. for me. And and I also want to say like this is one of those really difficult films to talk about and, and write a review about because – I want to call it a it's on me film, you know, where where especially because of the praise it's been getting elsewhere and how other people have connected with it. Um, I really do feel like there's something that I just failed to connect with on my own terms. I, w- I almost wonder if it's something about that acting element that I'm talking about. I'm not implying that you can only appreciate Madeline's Madeline if you have attempted acting or gone to acting school or something like that. But I do wonder if there's something I'm personally missing because that's such a foreign space for me. Sure. No, I think that's probably partially true for me as well. When I talk about some of these awkward exchanges and the confrontational nature of them and how uncomfortable that makes me, well, that's what these actors that we're seeing on screen are doing all the time. They're putting themselves out there. They're putting themselves in the way of other people, in the faces of other people. And I do think maybe you have to have a certain tolerance for that or a certain understanding of that. And maybe you would appreciate this movie a little bit more. I think you're right about how vague and elusive some of the relationships are because they are kind of thinly sketched and vague and elusive is a good way to describe this entire film. And yet the scene in particular that I was referring to the most uncomfortable exchange, everything about what makes that uncomfortable between the mother, Miranda July between our main character, Madeline played by Helena Howard and then Molly Parker's Evangeline, the theater instructor. I felt all of that because I understood what buttons were being pushed by at least the two characters in that scene who are pushing buttons while the other one is getting attacked. And I had a very good sense of what she was feeling and why it was being inflicted on her, why it punished her so much. I think that comes through at least in the form of actions in this film. I understand that mother-daughter relationship only in the form of how oddly to me 
Miranda July sometimes acts as a mother. But then you see her daughter's behavior sometimes and you realize that, oh, well, that's coming from a place of love and a place of of care and maybe some misunderstanding. But she's trying to do the best she can. But at the same time, you've got this daughter who is saying, I don't want that kind of love. I don't want that type of treatment. And the way they butt heads, I did feel like I had enough substance there between them to latch on to. You know, I, I just, I want, I want you to be careful, you know, because you're not. I'm not uh, what? Um, you know, you're not like the other people. Because I'm black? No. Madeline. Regina. I just feel like you're maybe not ready, you know, your, your situation. What are you saying? What are you saying? It's different from the other people in the, you know, everyone else is, is stable and, um, you know, if you had an episode, which you probably will, what would happen? What, Evangeline is going to Well, and I do wonder, too, if it's a matter of trying to portray a character, the mother in particular, from different perspectives and July playing that performance different ways as a result Mm -hmm. so that we do have scenes where we're seeing her as Madeline does and then scenes where she sees herself. She's playing it as she would see herself and that sometimes those lines aren't as clear for Mm -hmm. us as viewers. You mentioned uh, Helena Howard as Madeline and I we do got to say she's you know a very galvanizing presence on the screen yeah. a newcomer as an actress and I think you know she holds the camera for sure I think she overcomes what I would say the camera's fetish with her you know voluminous burst of hair right it almost gets to be too much the way the camera just focuses on that defining her as a character um, but really as an actress I mean she carries you all the way through this thing and hits a lot of different beats with a character who's unstable mm-hmm. in a lot of ways so she's going to be brazen in one scene browbeaten in another she's she's violent she's scary and then there are other sequences where she's vulnerable and I think Howard is able to skip along each of those without them maybe this goes a little bit to what I was describing with July without her ever seeming like she's a different character it's always the same 16 year old girl uh, no matter what volatile emotional beat she's hitting yeah I really love the performance though I did almost feel at times like it was overperformed but I realized that more than anything, it was about those close-ups and the reaction shots. And when she feels that she's being affronted in some way, there's no subtlety about it whatsoever. She's kind of an open book, and she's not hiding anything in terms of when she does react, when she does feel like she's been wronged in some way. And yet she's hiding everything, really, as a person that struggled with mental illness that she never really wants to fully reveal. And the hair you mentioned, too— is so perfect for this character because it completely covers her face at times. It engulfs her entire head, and that does lead you sometimes to not know what she is really feeling or expressing. There are at least a couple times where she's being really emotive, and you are in the same position her mother's in where you actually aren't sure if she's expressing joy or sadness or fear or something else. She's in kind of an excited state, but because we can't see her face, we're hearing it, but we're not seeing it, and we're not making the connection totally in what she's trying to express. But that ability to express is something that's really amazing with Howard as an actress. And there's a line in the movie, actually, where Parker's character, I think they're doing a photo shoot. She says something to her like, you know, do that thing you do where you you just show emotion, (laughs) you know. And I felt like that was pretty true to probably the filming of this movie where Decker as a 
filmmaker probably felt like she could at any point just turn to Howard as an actress and say, yeah, give me that thing. Erupt. Give me some real emotional yeah. volatility. Erupt. She can do that. Erupt is a right? great word for and it. And I do think for me, that's the other thing I am latching onto a little bit with this movie, even though at this point I'm filling in blanks that the movie asks me to fill in. It certainly doesn't present them. But I keep coming back to that scene and that three-way psychological triangle that's happening when Madeline is doing a performance. And that line comes up when the director says, immersive theater in that moment i felt like she undoubtedly had to be standing in for the director of this film because as i said this entire movie is a project that seems about trying to offer immersive theater but in that moment josh that character is someone who we are at a complete low point for in terms of our respect for her. We've seen some true pettiness come out in her character. There's some things we can certainly judge her for, not only as a theater instructor, but just as a person. But in that moment, we really start to see that she's this artist who buys into this idea that she's got a vision she's trying to serve and whatever truth she's exploring, that end justifies the means. However she gets there, she doesn't care. The problem is she's exploiting someone else along the way and causing some pain and suffering to get there. And it did make me wonder if that truly is a stand-in moment for the filmmaker. Is that what Decker is suggesting that she as an artist feels and that what all directors on some level are doing where they are exploiting other people's stories or at least exploiting other people's pain and suffering and emotion and happiness to tell their story. There are a lot of metaphors in this film, including the movie opens with saying that she's playing a cat, but you're not really the cat. This is all a metaphor. And I do think that underlines this entire movie yeah, for is sure. that idea. And so it's very easy to read it as a metaphor, the whole film for the artistic process and very specifically for Josephine Decker's artistic process a lot of metaphor talk here so this might speak to that decker's career you know she has been making films since 2005 short films couple documentaries and she's been acting since 2011 so she knows both sides of this as an actor as a director and is bringing those two things together in in a pretty wild mix in madeline's madeline madeline's madeline is out now in limited release if you see it we'd love to hear your thoughts And we definitely would feedback at filmspotting.net. I would also encourage you to read, even though I've only read about two paragraphs of it at this point, I'd encourage you to read David Ehrlich's long interview with both Howard and Josephine Decker over at IndieWire. He is rapturous about this film, so he might help you unpack it a little bit. But I know from what I've seen, even in some tweets and other comments, that there's a lot to unpack just within that conversation he had with the star and the co-writer-director of the movie. So we'll link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net if you are curious. Let's end then with a conversation, Josh, actually about a movie that could be more different than Madeline's Madeline, but is also quite experimental, like the previous film, and is a movie at least this film would suggest, that is also about a true artist. That being John McEnroe, the movie John McEnroe in the Realm of Perfection, a documentary of sorts that basically uses as its Zabruder film that it's going to replay and replay and examine and examine and examine footage that was shot back in 1984 at Roland Garros, where the French Open is held. And 
the national tennis instructor, basically. I think that's who he is. Gil DeCarmadec shoots this footage of McEnroe, and he is so obsessed with McEnroe as an artist, as a tennis player, that he takes all of this footage, not only shot from multiple angles during his actual performance at the French Open, but also practice footage where he just gets him to play tennis on camera and tries to really explore and explain what makes McEnroe McEnroe. What did you make of this movie, Josh? Well, I think it was it's the French Tennis Federation, right? That that had yeah. all this footage. And what's fascinating is first of all that they have this in France, right? This federation that's taking footage of all these players. It wasn't just McEnroe, but they found out when this film's director, Julian Ferreau, went to look at some of this footage, they found out most of it was of McEnroe. And so he was just intrigued. Why? What's to see there? And first of all, I, I've come to tennis late. I've only started playing the last couple of years and have totally fallen in love with it. I wish I could play more. I wish I had played in high school. It just wasn't on the sports radar Does when mean, I was that age. Am I going to get you on the racquetball court? Uh, racquetball? Uh, come on. It's a gentleman's sport. <laughs> But I was fascinated by the beginning of this where it's breaking down McEnroe's form, yeah. right? Just the that's the sports nut element that is here. Um, so we can't downplay that. But really, it's a little bit like minding the gap. You start going deeper and the movie just blossoms and opens up. And Faroe does make it this experimental theory that McEnroe on the court was essentially – the part where it starts to turn for me is when he talks about him as an actor. Yeah. Right? Because that makes sense. We think about the all the tantrums he would mm -hmm. throw. Even as a kid, I remember that in the 80s. That's what I knew of McEnroe. And this footage shows those tantrums, and we begin to understand that maybe there's some sort of strategy at play. They bring in a psychologist who's saying what's unique about McEnroe is that he didn't lose his playing cool when he lost his cool. He could throw a tantrum for 10 minutes and go right back and still be skilled and precise. Yes. In fact, that was all part of the and energy that, was that he all, needed. Yes. So that he's was playing off of everyone. So that was fascinating, which Faro uses to extrapolate this larger theory that, okay, he's something of an actor. Well, or is he something of a director? Exactly. Bigger than the actor. Even. And is he controlling mm -hmm. this whole match as a production. And that just seems so true because as you're watching this footage, you realize no one is paying any attention to his opponent at all. None. Just like he's, the camera usually is The camera is not. He's he's totally taken control of this thing and to a legendary career. So yeah, that, I, this was fascinating. I, my guess is you were like way more burrowed into the meta elements, yes. which I did appreciate and I think are there. Um, but as we mentioned again in Minding the Gap, they're very much at the surface. Um, definitely fascinating. But really, everything in here I, I, I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, me too. I think it's a fascinating movie. And among those meta elements, because maybe what Josh described there so eloquently doesn't sound quite that weird, but there are parts in this film where Furrow starts to bring in other cinematic elements, including a moment where kind of out of nowhere, and I'll be honest, I still haven't quite figured out why it's there. We start hearing underneath McEnroe lines from Raging Bull. Yeah, De Niro. Jake LaMotta confronting <laughs> Joe Pesci about whether or not he slept with his wife. And it was so weird and so unnerving to me in the moment. I'm watching this at home. I've got the Chromecast going. It's streaming onto my TV screen. It's so through me, Josh, that 
I got up to see if somehow like my DVD player started feed. playing. Like like I knew I hadn't watched sure. Raging Bull recently, but I just knew it had to be coming from somewhere. How could it be part of this yeah. film? So there are those kind of elements, some more effective than others. That might have been before the actor and auteur theory was. even came in. So yeah. it's kind of like giving us a hint of that, a sense yes. of that. But yeah, it's very I disarming. think that's a good explanation. I think that it's a wonderful movie because the entire purpose is very clearly to fixate on his unique talent and his unique temperament. And it obsesses over every movement and gesture of John McEnroe for 95 minutes. But maybe the best thing I could say about it is that I have no idea and I haven't read anything. I have no idea what John McEnroe himself might think of it. Yeah, I thought about that too. Like he might see it. He might watch this movie and think it got it. It's the first time someone got me. It's the ultimate tribute to me. It's uh-huh. the only movie that truly captures my effervescence and, and the concoction that is me. Or maybe he watch it and he absolutely despises it, right? Maybe he thinks it's pretentious nonsense that's kind of exploiting his talent so the filmmaker can explore things like we've touched on broadly filmmaking and audience reception, how an action or series of actions changes when you study it or only see it from one perspective, all of these things. Generally here, the director takes tennis and especially, obviously specifically, McEnroe's type of tennis and tries to turn it into this larger artistic and existential battle that McEnroe himself may not at all care about and doesn't think we as audience members should care about, or maybe he thinks it's amazing. And again, it's just getting it dead on. So I'd love to hear that, actually, how he reacts to it. Of course, it can be both of those things, and it probably is a little bit of both of those things. We touch on this a lot whenever we talk about biopics, the old adage that they always go wrong because they try to cram in too much. They try to tell too expansive of a story. They don't fixate enough on a defined, important period. I mean, <laughs> this film is the hyper version of that, right, where it's just down to repeating on screen for us the same strokes and the same serves over and over again. From a cinematic point of view, I think anyone's obsession can be dramatic and compelling. And here we have three different men obsessed. McEnroe himself is obsessed with playing a certain type of game with winning. Gil DeCarmadec, the French tennis guy that we touched on, is clearly obsessed with him. And Pharaoh is obsessed with both of them. He's obsessed with McEnroe and with Farrow as a filmmaker. And when you bring that much obsession and passion to any project, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter for me how much you care about tennis or how much you care about John McEnroe. That's enough of an in for me. And we should also mention that Farrow is the editor here. So he's he's really got his hands in the texture of this stuff, which is important because a lot of these sequences are replayed from different angles. Generally, DeCarmadec was working with three different cameras. He had other operators during these matches. And so it involves some stitching together of that footage and precisely showing us a certain movement Mm -hmm. from three different angles and studying what we can discover. The the overall impression to me is, you know, no matter what the subject matter, I came away from this thinking, I've got to watch everything more closely. Yeah. Like how much am I? Yeah. And and it it shows, but not only that, it shows you what reveals itself when you take the time to do that. Now, obviously, you know, especially in doing what we do, we apply that instantly to movies. And I start thinking about all the things I miss when I just look away from the screen uh, or when I'm, you know, watching something I'm not that into and I'm not paying as close attention as I should. But you could apply it to all of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, the more that you are paying attention and giving 
consideration of context. That's the other thing this movie does is it mm-hmm. brings in that psychological angle that I was talking about. Okay, well, let's let's study this tantrum from a particular uh, vantage point of someone who is a competitor, who is a perfectionist, mm-hmm. um, and what might this – what looks to us like just someone being a baby – what might be going on in a different person's mind? And so there's there's all sorts of context that is brought to these very detailed, repeated scenes as well that doesn't make this academic or boring at all. I mean, it's very playful. Mm-hmm. There, there are some playful touches in addition to the Raging Bull thing. There's the moment during one of his, his longer pouts where we get the technical difficulty graphic and, and that sort of familiar mm-hmm. music emphasizing how long this is going on. Um, so this is a lot of fun, too. Yeah, it is. And everything you said about looking closely and what that can reveal, it makes me think about Dick Armadak, who it's now occurring to me that I'm going to get emails from people telling me that it's probably Gilles, not Gil. I, I think it is Gilles. Yeah, well, yes. of course, because it's French. So just excuse my Americanism there. But he reminds me of Edward Mybridge and going back to film history and the way no one really understood how to capture or to understand how a horse trotted. And they would try to explain it by showing photos, except photos got it all wrong. Looking at the photos didn't accurately show you how a horse moved, but he was able to animate them. Basically, this is the early ancestors here of cinema. He animated those photos. You could actually see the gallop of a horse and our understanding completely changed. That's what this movie is in its own micro way and that it's only focusing on McEnroe, but compared to that horse example, in a macro sense, it's really forcing you to consider how all those things interplay. There's a little section on slow motion that speaks to that as well. John McEnroe in the realm of perfection out now, if you see it and want to let us know what it revealed to you, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That is our show, Josh, by my count. We talked about Five movies? Yeah, I think it was five. I'm not good at math. Is that a, five is that a movies? Rec- I was as good at math as I was in French. So, <laughs> pardon me. Five movies, and at least four of them had the potential to be Golden Brick nominees. Where are we coming out as far as Minding the Gap, Night Comes On, Madeline's Madeline, and this movie, In the Realm of Perfection? Which ones are getting put on the shortlist? Well, let me ask you a nuts and bolts question. Okay. It, what's the top... What's the number of the shortlist? Like, how many do we as big as to? we wanted to be? There's no limit. Yeah, let's. I think we put them all on. Yeah, I do too. I mean, even even Madeline's Madeline, which we're both kind of confounds us. Yeah, we're but in a good yeah, way. I'd say we're both mixed on. I would absolutely encourage people to see. Me too. So that puts it on the list for yes, me. All four of them. There you go. On the shortlist. We will eventually narrow it down to just five and have our final announcement on our end of year rap party, which we hope will be a live rap party this year. More details about that hopefully coming soon. You're putting that out there. Now it's now it's got to happen. Exactly. All right. That's why I did it. Get this thing in motion at filmspotting.net. You can find 13 years of reviews, interviews and top fives in the show archives. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. What is your favorite non Richard Linklater, non 2018 Ethan Hawke performance? Yes. If you're confused by that, join the crowd. Also, if you haven't already, check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. That is available wherever you listen to podcasts. 
hey, do you want a Film Spotting t-shirt? We have other merch. You can get all of that at filmspotting.net slash shop. In limited release opening this weekend, The Little Stranger. After a doctor is called to visit a crumbling manor, strange things begin to occur. With Donald Gleason directed by Lenny Abramson, that's what happens at crumbling manors. Just don't go to the crumbling manor. John McEnroe in The Realm of Perfection and Madeline's Madeline, along with Minding the Gap, three movies we talked about here on this show that are all on the Golden Brick shortlist, opening as well in limited release, in wide release kin. Now, Josh. Yes. I don't know if you actually read this far ahead in what's in front of us here, but if I tell you there's a movie coming out called Kin, do you care much about it, just based on the title? Um, For some reason, I think it involves dogs. Okay, so you're not that excited? No. Okay. Then I read you the plot description. A recently released ex-con and his adopted teenage brother are forced to go on the run with a weapon of mysterious origin as their only protection. Do you care a little bit more? Where's the dog? No dog yet. (laughs) No. Maybe that's the weapon of mysterious origin. There you go. So, so far, I'm still tuned out on this movie. Yeah. But then I give you the cast. Okay. James Franco, Zoe Kravitz, Carrie Coon, and Dennis Quaid. Strong. Are you more intrigued? Strong. Now yes. I'm in. Okay. Okay. I That'll sell it. me. Okay. You should have led with that. I should have. Searching. Also out, John Cho searches for his missing daughter via her laptop, a movie we are curious about and we hope to make some time for. We'll see if our schedules allow next week on the show. We're devoting it to Ethan Hawke, even after he slagged Logan and set Twitter all afire this past weekend. Wow. You're you're devoting it. Uh, because yeah. of those comments, I'm going to begin an Ethan Hawke boycott. Fair. Start totally next fair. week. We can add so that. I don't know how you're going to do the show. We can add that to all the awful hot takes that were out there in response to his comments about Logan. That doesn't come up in my conversation with Ethan Hawke because I taped that interview a few months ago. Sorry, I couldn't attack him for his thoughts on superhero movies. Otherwise, I'm sure... You would have loved to have dug into superhero movies oh, of with course. Ethan Hawke of right at the top of your question list. Right. Our top five list will be Ethan Hawke scenes we might include from performances that are from this year and from Richard Linklater's filmography. We'll see. I'm going to. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogeren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to find a few new listeners. That is a great way to do it. Music this week, it came from Taylor Jansen, and it's from the album Fear and Faith. You can find more information at taylorjansen.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. How long, how long was that? That's a good question. I mean, it was at least five or six minutes. No, I didn't talk for six minutes about the Happy Time murders. No, no. We're going to find out. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.